And then we found a little rocky alcove that was protected from the wind that was in the crater itself. So the, the crater, it, it looks like you would think of it as a volcano, and but it's filled with snow. Episode 295, Jim Lim and Casa talk ski mountaineering on Mount Rainier, as well as some experiences from climbing Colorado 14ers. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening today to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Wow, we have been having so much fun lately. It's It's been an, an amazing summer and a lot of changes around here at the Adventure Sports Podcast. I, uh, I'm going to put together a show that tells you a little bit about that, and we'll have that coming out in a couple of weeks or something like that. But just a teaser, it's been a really fun time. I hope that your summer's going well and you're having the adventures of a lifetime. Um, wanted to mention... The best thing that you can do to help support the Adventure Sports Podcast is to tell your friends about the show. I think we've got such a great thing going, and our audience is growing by leaps and bounds. People love the show, and we love that, but they'll never know about the show unless someone like you lets them know. So please tell your friends about the Adventure Sports Podcast so that they can listen in as well, learn about wonderful adventure sports that will help them to have richer, healthier more fulfilling lives. So that's really what it's all about. Today's show is with Jim Lemoncasa. And Jim is a, a climber who has done a lot of like trad climbing, technical rock climbing, and then transitioned into alpinism and ski mountaineering. So he's done more of the big mountain stuff. He's been in Nepal. He's done almost all of the Colorado 14ers. And uh, he's got a long history in the outdoors industry as well, which I think you'll find really interesting. But his, uh, his most recent venture, which is fascinating, is he has launched a tea product that is absolutely perfect for backpacking and portable use. And we're, we're going to talk about that toward the end of the show, but I want you guys to think about this for a minute. It's a type of tea unlike any other, but it is so good and it's perfect for backpacking. So we're going to get back into that. Well, Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kurt. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. We're glad you're here. Um, I want to start by talking about climbing. What I like about your background in climbing is that it's not just one type of climbing or another. We've done a lot of shows with uh, recently with people that do a lot of trad climbing, you know. And then we've yep. done several shows with people that are doing mountaineering. You do it all. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> but how did you get into climbing in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I a lot of the friends that I know, I've followed a pretty similar trajectory where when you're young and, and eager to get after it, you're doing a lot more hard sport climbing and bouldering. And, and as you start to age a bit, you find that your fingers can't crimp as much as they used to. And so you start um, you know, taking your passions into other areas of the mountain. So um, that's kind of been my history. So I started, I was born and raised in Ohio, North Canton, Ohio, the home of the Football Hall of Fame. And I was in a Boy Scout troop there and eventually got my Eagle Scout. But it was my, I think it was my sophomore year, so I was 15 or 16 years old, and they took us to an indoor climbing wall, which was at the local YMCA. It had four plywood walls that were 35 feet tall, and one of them we eventually put across the roof, so it turned into a, another 30-foot roof, um, straight roof uh, climb. And I just fell in love with climbing. It was, I never touched rock outdoors for the first six months of climbing, and then after climbing there a bunch. I started going outdoors and I was eventually hired by that, um, that, that climbing center to be a climbing instructor. And I spent most of my high school, my, my job was as a climbing instructor at the local climbing wall, which is a little different than what Boulder, Colorado climbing instructors would do. Right. I was doing a lot of just like tying up little kids for birthday parties and making sure that they don't kill themselves. But um, it was still a great experience. And I started traveling to the New River Gorge and the Red River Gorge and just doing a lot of sport climbing. And then when I was starting to look for colleges to go to, my dad said, you have to find somewhere that's a good business. I wanted to be a businessman. So I wanted to look for business school. And he said, it's got to be a good business school. It can't, it can't just be for rock climbing, Jim. So I said, all right. So when we did a, a trip to Boulder, Colorado, 
it it checked both of those boxes. Clearly, it's like Climberstown, USA, sure. but it also has one of the top 20 business schools in the country. And so I moved out of Ohio. I think still to this day, I'm the only one out of my entire family, mom or dad's side, to have left the state of Ohio. Uh-huh. So I'm the crazy one. I go back home and everybody says, man, it must be so cold in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him. Don't tell him. <laughs> it's colder in Ohio. You're crazy. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I moved to, moved to Colorado, started school, still climbed a bunch, Eldorado Canyon, Boulder Canyon, really started getting deeper into trad climbing once I moved to Colorado because Eldorado is arguably one of the best trad sites in the country. And uh, spent my entire college just climbing on the weekends and the afternoons and don't tell my parents, but skipping class a few days here and there to go climbing. <laughs> and, uh, and it was probably, it was towards the middle of college that I, I did my first 14ers and the, I, it was the first time I'd been up that high. And again, growing up in Ohio, you've never seen anything like it before and absolutely fell in love with the altitude and the mountains and, and just the peace and serenity as well as the challenging, you know, every, I always tell people every 14 or has its challenge, even the, the easy ones that are, you know, six miles round trip and they're a walk up, it's going to be high winds or there's a thunderstorm going to come in or your partner's going to forgot their water bottle or something. You know, there's something that's going to challenge on every 14 or, and so that really, I fell in love with more of the alpinism style. And then I started, <clears throat> excuse me, started looking for routes up the 14 ers that would be involve rock climbing. Mm. And so done most of the technical pitches of rock climbing in the 14ers. Now, if I try not to do the walk-ups anymore, if there is a technical route to be found that's reasonably safe, um, then I prefer to do that. And I think probably one of my favorite climbs was a year and a half ago doing the Ellingwood Arete on Crestone Needle. It was just such an iconic rock climb up a 14er. So then, you know, continued into mountaineering and then I've now, again, my, I kind of said before, but my hands can't take the real crimpy sport climbing style. And so I've just, I've started doing a lot more technical mountaineering and ski mountaineering. And that's taken me into the Himalayas. It's taken me uh, all over Colorado. And then most recently it took me to Rainier. Awesome. So you recently skied Mount Rainier. I did. And I want to talk about that quite a bit just because... We've had a, a few shows on Mount Rainier, but primarily it's just talking about how it's, you know, it's the lower 48 expedition climb. You know, it, it is yep. the lower 48 yep. expedition climb. It is. We've just not talked to a lot of people that have uh, skied Rainier, and I know that a lot of people are going to want to hear about that. Um, the mountain that it is, it just is so iconic, the idea of skiing it. Um, and the special challenges that I anticipate you probably had to work with, with, uh, crevasses and things. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I wanted to go back to your Crestone needle comment. Okay. Um, I climbed Crestone peak and then went down the backside to try to traverse over and do the needle off route, you know, on the backside. And I'm wondering if it was the same route that you just did. We didn't do it. Um, in the end, it got a little too airy for one of our our climbers, and he yeah. he was not he was not prepared for it. And I called it. I said, "No, no, this guy's going to get hurt." So we ended up hiking down and climbing it on the standard route the next day. But tell us about that climb up Crestone Needle. Well, that was an awesome climb. It, you know, it starts from the Twin Lakes Basin. So I think it, you were do, you were doing the connecting ridge between Crestone and Crestone Peak and Crestone Needle, right? Yeah, we dropped down pretty low, so I, we didn't stay on the ridge, but we dropped down and then headed back up. Yeah, I think that's a different route. Um, okay. But so the the Ellingwood Arete is the most dominant, uh, I guess, feature of the mountain. So when if you if your users your listeners if they were if they're out, if they're at a computer type in Crestone Needle, and you'll see it's just this huge rock buttress that sticks out and it goes for almost three thousand feet up the mountain. Mm. So. It is an incredible rock feature. It looks, as most mountains do, it looks a lot steeper when you're at the base of it or when you're looking at a picture than it actually is when you're on the mountain. So the majority of that uh, 3,000 feet is fourth and low fifth class scrambling. Really? But it has mandatory fifth class, high fifth class, or not high, but 5.7 to 5.9 is the easiest route up the needle. And then it can go up 
from there. And there's an upper head wall, the buttress that's at the top 500 feet. That's where the real technical climbing is. So you start at the lakes and then you hike up a truss pile. And then there are two routes that, that you can go. There's the, the ledges, so you can kind of skirt around the lower cliffs. Or you can climb. There's two pitches in the lower cliffs that are 5, 7, and 5, 8. And so we actually, unfortunately, our alarm clock didn't go off. <laughs> and so by the time we got to the base of the cliff, there was two parties that were starting on those two lower pitches. And literally, we were hiking for 30 minutes and watching them, and they didn't move from the base of the climb for 30 minutes. Whoa. And so at that point, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to get – first of all, I don't want to get behind these people from a rock fall potential potential, but I also, they're not moving very quickly. So this could really ruin the day. Right. So fine, let, let's screw it around and take the ledges. And I'm really glad that we did because something must've happened to that group. They, we never saw them for the rest of the climb. And you can pretty much see down to the base of the climb from anywhere on the mountain. So, huh. and I'll get to why. So I think that they hit ice and they ended up uh, not being okay. through it and turned back because, so we continued the climb. We, we skirted around, got up onto the the main buttress there. And then it's probably a thousand feet of, again, high fourth class and low fifth class scrambling. We didn't rope up, just kind of cruise through that stuff. And then when we got to the upper head wall, we did one pitch and it was a five, six and super fun. It's really interesting rock. I had never seen it like that in Colorado before. It's basically, it's got these huge river stones that some of them can be the size of your head. Some of them, are the fist size, some of them are pebbles but they're literally river stone and they're embedded in the rock and the rock is like cement. So you see these round bulbs that are sticking out of the rock and it, it, they create amazing handholds, but then every once in a while you'll see a concave area where I pulled out and you're like, Oh, maybe these aren't as secure as I thought they were. So, but it was really interesting climbing, very unique to Colorado or, or anywhere I've ever been for that matter. Um, so we climbed the five, six pitch. And then the next pitch was, you have to kind of curve around to the North side of the mountain. And we climbed this in, uh, it was the second week of September and they had gotten snow up there because the moment we skirted around to the North side of the mountain, it was like bulletproof ice. Oh, and there was, we're in rock shoes and, and hiking boots. We didn't have any crampons or ice tools with us, which you would have needed to do that. And so it scooted back around and said, no, we can't do the standard route. And so we ended up kind of connecting the lower pitch to the upper one, kind of through a meandering gully system that was pretty chossy, but you got you do what you got to do. And so we got up and so we avoided the ice at that section. And then we got up to the, the crux of the pitch, which is a 5-9 dihedral. And this is now we're at about 13-5. And from the base this pitch was 210 feet long so it was a long pitch and from the base of the pitch it looked dry but after about 75 feet into it we started hitting ice and so all of those rounded rocks and river stones that were embedded in it they were all covered in ice so instead of all these nice relatively nice jugs that you're standing on or holding we were looking for pebbles and small stuff that hadn't iced over yet so turned in pretty that was a really tough pitch and so that what do you think you would rate it the way you had to climb it? I mean, I you're mean, doing it the hard way. Yeah, it's it was it felt 11ish. Wow. Yeah, that's um, crazy. And it was freezing cold, so by the top of the pitch, couldn't feel my hands. So even you're crimping on stuff, saying I think this is good, but I can't really feel anymore. So oh well. <laughs> and there's one of those situations where you're like, well, what are you going to do? You're in it. You can lower down and leave a bunch of gear and descend the mountain, but it's, it was, it was pretty loose rock. So going down would be very dangerous. And so it was safe enough for us to feel comfortable to continue up. Mm. So we finished that pitch. There was one more five, seven pitch, which was a glory pitch because it was back in the sunny. Then there was no ice, super fun, um, like hand jams, like fist and, and fist size hand jams and hand size hand jams. And, uh, and then we got up to the last couple hundred feet were snow. And so we're in rock shoes, but it was, it wasn't that steep. It was probably 35 degrees. So we could kick steps into the snow and then summited. Wow. That is such an interesting account of climbing a 14er. You almost never hear that kind of a story related to 14ers because most of them you walk up and 
the way that, that you chose a route that would be technical, first of all, and then the weather and, and the ice and the snow and, and everything else. Um, fascinating climb on Crestone Needle. That is so cool. I would recommend it to people. It, I would say August would have been a better time to go. And, but the risk, you know, August, we tend to get a little more thunderstorms than in September. So one of the other risks of that peak is that the climb itself is, is on the east side of the mountain and most of our storms come from the west. So once you're on the buttress, you really can't see clouds building or coming at you. I have another friend who did that same climb and he got caught into a deluge thunderstorm because he couldn't see it coming. It just blew over the top and soaked him. So like I said, every 14er has their challenges. You know, I have to I have to tell you, the second time I did Crestone Needle was probably one of my very favorite climbs of all the 14ers I've ever done. And I was on the standard route, but it had rained. I mean, golly washer storms all night long. Yeah, that's and, rough. Yeah, we got up at daybreak, and uh, one of the, the climbers with me just said, oh, well, that's a wash, let's just leave. And I said, you know what? Let's forget about summiting. Let's just go on a hike. And as long sure. as it's safe, we'll keep going. And if it's not safe, then we'll we'll say we had a great hike. Yeah. And he's like, all plan. right, all right, we'll try that. So we started going up the mountain, and it was socked in with clouds, but the rain had stopped, and the temperature was hovering right at freezing point. Oh, yikes! It, that's scary. But the rock yeah. was still warm from okay. you know the oh. seasonal warmth that had been there. And so the yeah. rock wasn't holding or collecting ice. It was just okay. wet. But as we're climbing up, the cloud was freezing to us. So, you know, we have frosted eyelashes and eyebrows and beards and you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah. we just kept saying, is this safe? But the rock never iced. So we just kept on moving and we made it to the top. Of course, didn't get to see any view, but climbing in those conditions with the hush of the clouds, the fog hanging there and and in swirling around all those spires and things that Cresto Needle has, they call them gendarmes there, I guess. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it was magical, absolutely magical experience. I loved yeah. it. That's Beautiful. cool. You don't get that much in Colorado either, because normally we're we getting bluebird sunny days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, cool mountain, and uh, you're right. It, it looks like someone got some cement and a bunch of cobblestones and glued a mountain together. Yeah, which totally. is kind of weird. I mean, geologically, it's fascinating just to think that those rocks were formed underwater somewhere, and now they're 14,000 feet off the ground in this composite, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. And it is cool, but, you know, even if your listeners don't have any desire to summit Crestone Needle, just going up there, the Twin Lakes, I think, is some of the most beautiful camping in all of Colorado because you're looking up at several 14ers, and you, like you said, you can hike up to the ridge and just have a nice day hike. You don't even have to summit, but it, it can give just a really uh, interesting geological hike, put it that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, it's my favorite valley that I've been in so far in the Sangre de Cristos. It's just lovely. Me too. Me too. Yeah, really, really cool place. Well, I love it that you've done so many of the 14ers you mentioned before we started recording. You only have five left. Five left. To check them all off. That is awesome. Congratulations. What are the big five? Well, so I got Pikes Peak because I've never been very, that excited to climb 14ers that have roads to the top of them. Right. So I'm going to try to tick that one off this winter when there's no cars up there and ski it. And then Mount Lindsay, which is in the Sangre de Cristos, they had a huge uh, flood and it washed out the road into the trailhead. So now instead of it being, I think it's like an eight mile round trip from the trailhead. Now there's seven miles on uh, a washed out road that most people mountain bike now. So you mountain bike to the trailhead and then climb it. So, ah, cool. it, is, so it ends up kind of adding an, an extra day, which will be fun. Just like mountain bike with a backpack on and then camp at the trailhead and then go do the mountain and then bike out. But I just haven't done it yet. And then the last, the other three are the famous Chicago basin group where gotcha. you take a, a train from Durango to Silverton and you get off halfway and then you hike in, I think it's about six miles into the basin. And then there's three 14ers there. And so, again, just timing wise, it's, it's a six hour drive from Boulder and then the train and then the hike in. You know, it's you can't really do them in under five days. Um, so it's just taking a week off vacation and going and doing them. Right on. And people should know that that train is not just any train. It's a steam engine. 
That's awesome. Oh, Narrow total. gauge. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So that great reason for those five to be the last five. Are you saving one for last that you want to be your final one? Not necessarily. I think it'll probably end up being the Chicago Basin Group, the train one, just because timing-wise takes a little longer to get there. But I don't know. I mean, it's not like I'm going to stop climbing 14ers after I climb them all either. It's a nice thing to say you've done. But the way I look at it, honestly, Kurt, is that I love the 14ers because they took me to areas in the state of Colorado that I wouldn't have normally gone. Oh, yeah. Like everybody goes to Vail or Aspen or Crested Butte or, you know, these iconic places, which are awesome. But there's so many small towns that are next to these 14ers that you never would have been to or just parts, ranges of mountains that you wouldn't have gone. I probably wouldn't have gone to the Uncompadre Wilderness area because it's a long drive from Boulder. Who knows? But again, it's like the 14ers take me to areas in my own state that I just haven't been before. And so I love the travel aspect of it, adventure, as opposed to like, you know, some macho, like I've climbed all the 14ers type thing. Yeah. You know, I started climbing 14ers just because I like the idea of going up mountains. And then I kind of switched to 13ers because I like to pick my own route and have the solitude and more of a, it's almost, I mean, other people have been up them, but it's more like a first descent because you know, there's not a trail on a lot of them and you're, you're sorting out your own route. Um, cool. so I've not done the 14ers, all of them. I'm about two thirds of the way done, I guess. And, uh, really look forward to finishing them off though, just because now it's like, well, I might as well see them all. But exactly. man, when you finish the 14ers, you could do the centennials. True. You know, yeah. which means well, you're doing the top 100 and it just goes on and on and on. It never stops. I would say that because as of my, my attraction to the 14ers, it's kept me from traveling out of state as much for mountains. Right. And having gone recently to Rainier, I just fell in love with all the volcanoes out there. So now it's like, once I finish the 14ers, I'd like to ski all the, volcano, all, all the volcanoes on the West Coast. Yeah, you've got to do Shasta and Hood and, and yeah, uh, Mount St. Helens and Baker. And I mean, how many are there? I think there's 14. Oh, I could be wrong. Great. And but the other thing, right. you're probably aware of this. But there are over 700 peaks in Colorado over 13,000 feet. That's amazing. Yeah. So it, people, you know, they, they talk about doing the 14ers. Can, and it depends on how you count, right? 54, 56, 58. But uh, they, they often don't realize how many 13ers there are. I mean, there's so much. And the 13ers are more heavily carved and eroded from glaciation and stuff. So since you like the technical climbs, the 13ers offer far more of those big walls that you would cool. you would really enjoy. I don't know how much you've looked into that, but man, you've got a lifetime of climbing here. Well, Kurt, let's do it, man. Let's go up on one together. <laughs> yeah, we should. That'd be totally awesome. We're going to have to. Hey guys, Travis here. We've had some listeners write in to ask about ways that they can help support the Adventure Sports Podcast, so we wanted to let you guys know that we've just launched our new Patreon page, so go check it out. It's over at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. We've built a few patron levels in there with varying benefits. We want to keep bringing you your adventure inspiration twice a week, but we do need help to keep the show going. So head on over to Patreon and consider supporting what we produce. Thanks for listening, guys. By now you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bentgate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Well, let's talk about Rainier a little bit. 
since we we brought that up, skiing Mount Rainier. What was yeah. that like? Oh man, I mean, it was definitely the I would say the second coolest skiing experience I've ever had. <laughs> and we can talk about the first one being in in the Himalayas, but it is incredible. It literally felt that this mountain feels like you're in the Himalayas. If you're looking up towards the mountain and looking at all the ice falls and seracs and crevasses, it's like, oh my gosh, you don't see anything like this. I had not seen anything like this in the lower 48 before. So, you know, we, I had a group of uh, three of us. And so one guy from Detroit, but he was, he's been a ski patroller for seven years and just moved back to Detroit recently. And then another guy who is in uh, Seattle who also has been a ski patroller and real strong skier and is a nurse anesthetist. And so we picked a day, a weekend that would work with all of our schedules. And uh, we're fortunate because you know, the most of the time, if people don't get up Rainier, it's a lot of times because of weather. Right. And so we just got really fortunate that, that all the pieces came together for us to be able to get up and down safely. But so, you know, we did the, people ask what route, we did the Emmons Winthrop Glacier, so there's, you know, there's two main routes or two common climbed routes and disappointment cleaver on one side of the mountain and the Emmons Winthrop on the other. And so the Emmons Winthrop is a better ski because it holds snow a lot longer because it's on the north side of the mountain. And uh, so we, but still the first three and a half miles of the trip was on dirt. So we're carrying extremely heavy packs. You know? So yeah. our, our plan was to be up there for three to plan to be up there for three nights just so that we have a day. If the weather doesn't cooperate, we have another shot. So we, um, you know, carrying all your camping gear and you can't just carry light ultra lightweight stuff there. Cause you're camping on the glacier on the snow and winds can exceed 60 to 80 miles an hour at a lot of the camps up there. So you have to be prepared with mountain, you know, four, four season tents and more gear than you would typically have, plus all of all the climbing gear that everybody else has, ropes and crampons and ice screws and harness and carabiners and helmets. And then on top of that, we put our skis and our ski boots, ski crampons, skins, and ski poles. So oh. <laughs> uh, I weighed my pack and it was 72 pounds. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I always lean on the side of I would rather be prepared than be ultra lightweight. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, my my med kit alone is three and a half pounds. So, mm. but it's nice to have if something goes wrong. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so first three and a half miles were just on dirt, you know, not too steep. It had some altitude to it, but you get up and we finally hit snow line. It was hot, you know, down there, you're probably talking about 80, 85 degrees in the sun. It's a beautiful day, but just dripping sweat. And then we finally got up to the inner glacier, which is um, where we found snow and we were so happy and to take those skis off our back. And so we changed out of our hiking shoes and put our ski boots on. And then I don't know how much the listeners know, but you know, the, the, the bindings that you use for ski mountaineering are different than what you would use for Alpine skiing. So the, you know, you can either telemark, um, which has a free heel, or you can use DinaFit bindings. Um, there's a couple of the brands that have come out with them nowadays, but DinaFit bindings, they don't connect. When you're going uphill, your heel is loose, and so you can hike, um, and your heel goes up and down. Your toe is connected to the ski, and it pulls the ski along with you. And then when you get up to the top of this climb, whenever you're ready to ski, then you, you can turn the binding around and then step down, and then it connects to your heel, and now you're skiing like you would in the resorts. So we put our skis on, and you know that took, I don't know, eight pounds off of the pack, which felt amazing. And so we also roped up there uh, just for safety because there we started immediately. We could start to see some cracks in the snow, mm. and uh, so just hiked up. The inner glacier is about three thousand feet, and it takes two miles to get up it. So it's it's steep. Yeah, that's here. steep. And carrying big packs going up, we took a long time. Just took our time. Took lots of breaks. Ate food. Drank a bunch of water. Saw there was a lot of other groups up there, but we were the only group that was skiing. So it was nice to talk to people. And we, so we get up to the top of the inner glacier and, uh, met the climbing ranger uh, when a climbing ranger was coming up after us and talked to him. And he pointed out some good places to camp, which was about another thousand feet up from us on an area called the Emmons flats. And so once we got the top of that glacier, we transferred over to the Emmons glacier and then went up another thousand feet to Emmons flats, which is right about half of the mountain. So we had put, um, more than two thirds of the mileage behind us and half of the 
altitude behind us. And so we, we ended up getting there at around four o'clock in the afternoon, set up camp, made dinner, boiled a bunch of water. You have to melt snow for water and tr- got to bed early because we were going to be pl- planning to wake up early. But, you know, the, a lot of groups when you're climbing the mountain, they start at midnight or one or two a.m. and try to summit by eight or nine. And then they're back down by noon or one o'clock. But because we're skiing the and it was windy, so we wanted to leave a little bit later so that we would have a better chance to have softer snow conditions. And we're not skiing bulletproof ice the entire way. Right. So, you know, and that's one of the reasons that they leave so early is so they don't have softer snow conditions on the way down. Yep, exactly. Cause then, yeah. then they post hauling and it takes a lot more energy. So, but for us, it's the opposite and it's a risk, you know, it's just a time game and depending on how much wind there is and how much sun exposure the mountain gets, if it's cloudy or not. You never really know. So there's definitely some chance that you're taking. But so we ended up leaving. We got up at 4 a.m. We were hiking by five. And so sunrise was at six o'clock. So we were pretty early on in the climb when we when the sun hit. And but the by the time when we woke up, it was bulletproof down at camp. So everything was iced over. Um, so we you can't and it's it's steep. So it's pretty much consistent 45 degree angle for the entire upper mountain. So that's too, with the ice conditions, that's too steep to skin up. So we had to put the skis on our backs again, and we just had crampons on our ski boots for the whole climb. So we climbed, uh, I think we didn't see a crevasse for the first 1,500 feet. And then, then after that, you pretty much see one every 500 feet and sometimes several of them. So the first one was one of the, I would say, scariest ones because it doesn't, it's, it's probably only a foot and a half across, but you can look down and you're looking down probably 150 feet. Oh. It's a, it's a cavern underneath it. It's not just like a cut, a straight cut of ice. It's like a whole cavern. If when we, like I, I shouted down into it and there was actually an echo. Wow. So this thing was big. So again, luckily it's not very far across, but you know, at some point that thing's going to, as the snow continues to melt through the summer, it'll really open up and. I wonder how they'll the guides will get people up, up and through it. Hmm. So, um, you know, so we, we walked the whole way up. I, I think we crossed 12 major crevasses that you would not want to fall into and a lot more that were pretty small. And, and we saw a lot of indications of snow bridges starting to collapse and other crevasses would be opening up. But so as we're hiking up, we're, we're, we're talking every couple, every hour, we're like, man, I don't know if we're going to be able to ski this because, you know, in the lower section of the mountain, it was, they call it sun cups, which again, for the listeners, it's like indentations in the snow that as the, the dirt that is on top of the snow, as the snow continues to melt, the dirt kind of pools at the center of the sun cup and then melts it more. So you get these like mogul like um, it's like small moguls. And when this frozen, it's really hard to ski on. Oh man. And then in the middle of the mountain, we hit this, uh, it's a snow feature called Stratugi, which is like ice spears coming up out of the snow. And it's formed when the, the wind blows uphill as the sun is beating down on the snow. And so it melts the, the snow and then the wind pushes it up into these little ice spikes and freezes it. So, it's really difficult to ski on. So again, we're like, I don't know if we're gonna be able to ski this guys. Maybe we're just going to be walking up and down with our skis. Like, Oh, well, let's just keep going. And then at the top, it turned into this deep blue ice. It was a total, total dark, deep blue bulletproof ice. And about 1500 feet from the top, the wind really picked up. And by the time we got to the top, it was gusting. My guess is around 60 miles an hour. It's the type of wind that you could lean into and it, you wouldn't fall over. Right. It, was, it, it feels like it's, it's going to knock you off your feet when it hits you broadside. And consider then you have skis on your back, which act like a sail. <laughs> right. So a couple of us did. You got blown over a few times. So, you know, again, it's a, it's all your threshold. We're like, you know, I, I felt comfortable. We were roped up. Um, mountains are never easy. And you just kind of push through until you don't feel comfortable anymore. So we ended up, everybody did incredible, took a couple breaks and a couple of, a couple of my friends there are flatlanders, had a little more trouble with the altitude, but they pushed through it amazingly. 
get some food and sugar and rest a bit and got everybody to the summit. So we, like I said, we left at five and then we summited at 1030. And then we found a little rocky alcove that was protected from the wind that was in the crater itself. So the, the crater, it, it looks like you would think of it as a volcano and, but it's filled with snow. Mm. So the, the actual rim has rock all around it. But then when you look down into the crater, it has snow on top of it. And the guide told that the ranger park ranger told me that there's ice caves in that, um, caldera. Wow. So people, there are people that will explore these ice caves. <laughs> it sounds crazy to me. <laughs> well, it, you have to know what the volcano is about to do too, because it belches yeah. out sulfuric acid gas from time to time. Jeez. <laughs> that didn't happen when we were up there, but yeah, that's crazy. So we spent about a half an hour up there. Um, and then we said, you know, the game plan was let's, let's take, let's put our skis on, let's take a few turns and see how we feel. And if our edges are holding, then take a few more turns and, Kind of like you said, like, let's just go for a hike, see if it goes. And if, if not, then we'll put our skis away and we'll walk down. So we put our skis on and took a few turns and it, it felt fine. It wasn't, definitely wasn't great skiing at the top. It was, again, really hard, hard, icy turns, but it was a smooth surface. So it wasn't that difficult to make the turns. Um, pretty tired, you know, you've, hiked a long way the day before and hiked up the mountain that day. And then, so you're, you're dealing with some pretty tired legs for skiing. Right. So the, the, our again, game plan was like take five to 10 turns and then stop and rest. And then five to 10 more turns. I had gotten some advice from a friend of mine who said, you know, the crevasses can come up pretty quickly when you're on skis. So make sure that you've got enough energy to jump it. Um, and you're not, you're not skiing on legs that you can't jump with your skis. So I took that to heart. And so that's what we did. And, um, so the upper part of the mountain was actually pretty pleasant skiing. And then we got down into that Stratugi that was, there's little ice picks and it was, uh, very difficult. You know, it's kind of gripping every time you make a turn, it kind of wants to flip you over cause it grabs the ice grabs the sides of your skis. Oh, so you're kind of breaking through them and some of them are bigger than others. And it's just really picking your line. And there were some times that we would just side cut it. You know, you're not even making turns. You're just kind of sliding down sideways on your skis, which is super stable. Um, it's not going to make a highlight highlight of sports center or anything, but it's safety skiing. And, uh, you know, right around 12, five were some of the big crevasses, but that's also when the snow started to really soften up and become fun skiing. So we would, you know, one person would go down uh, out of the three of us and be pretty cautious to look for crevasses and then tell the other two guys, hey, it's great. You guys can ski openly and, and easily. And so then you can you can open it up a little bit more and have make some really fun turns. And uh, about that time, we, we could see the camp. And literally, we're looking down on Camp Sherman and the Emmons Flats. And it's like everybody is out of their tents looking up at us. <laughs> so, <laughs> right on. Like a gallery of people. You're like, oh, no, don't fall. Um, and so, you know, when you come across a crevasse, none of the crevasses were wide enough that you couldn't ski across them. So the, the technique is you just get up a little bit of speed and then you just jump right when you get to the crevasse and uh, ski across it. And so that's what we did. No issues with it. Um, and we, so we skied down the, again, the lower middle part of the mountain was awesome skiing. We, we hit some corn so for about 1500 feet. It was corn skiing. Nice. Really, really fun. And we we're just hooting and hollering. And the, it's just so cool to be skiing next to these ice falls and seracs that you're like, where am I? This is amazing. I can't believe I'm in the lower 48 of America. All right. And, uh, those, those frozen sun cups had turned into a little bit of a, a death field at the base of the mountain. It was just grippy, really wet, slushy snow, which, um, when it, it can like grab the bases of your skis. So it's a, that was really, uh, energy sucking skiing. Sure. You kind of, you get a little speed and it lets go. And then if you make a turn, then it grabs you again and it kind of wants to throw you over the handlebars. <laughs> so that there's a, a term for that kind of snow. It's a German term that I heard in Austria and it means train tracks, but I okay. don't remember what the word was. I'd have to look it up, but that's the way it is. It's like you're on train tracks. You can't do much. The snow is just locking you in. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what it was like. 
So, you know, we were probably 500 feet above camp and I'm looking down at our camp and I said to my buddy, I was like, dude, where's my tent? I couldn't, I have like a bright orange mountain hardware tent and it was not there. Uh Oh, and I'm like, did, did the Rangers move it? Did somebody, what happened? So the last 500 feet that that's just like going through my mind, like, where's my tent? Where's my tent? Where's my tent? So we finally ski back into Emmons flats and there are people there. And they're, um, the first thing I'm saying is like, Hey guys, have you seen an orange tent? They're like, yeah, dude, like 20 minutes ago, this huge wind came through camp oh, and, it, no. and it blew it into that crevasse over there. And I'm like, bummer. Uh, so, you know, you never know. Crevasses can be five feet deep and like be a new one or they can be really big. Right. So we like drop our packs, kind of rested just for a minute or so. Cause it's pretty tiring skiing. And then we skied over to the crevasse, which was probably 50 feet from camp. And, uh, I set up an anchor. I got, we had snow pickets and my ice axe and then I roped in and I had, I was on belay with my buddy and I walked over to the edge of the crevasse and looked down and this thing is deep. It's like mm, 80 feet deep. Ooh. And at first I couldn't see my tent. And so I walked a little bit closer to the edge and I could see all the way to the base. And I looked and I could, my tent was right at the bottom of it. <laughs> of course. Oh my gosh. So our rope was only a 30 meter rope because it was just a three man climbing team. So you didn't need a bigger one. So I was like, all right, well, I need to go talk to the Rangers and see if they have a 60 meter rope so I can go down and get it. And it was so uh, such an interesting timing, great timing. The Rangers were literally walking up from Camp Sherman at that moment. And so I went over to them and I said, hey, guys, my uh, my tent went into the crevasse over there. And they said, that's really funny because somebody else's tent went in yesterday and we were coming up to get their tent. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, awesome. Well, let's work together to get this thing out. So we it was cool, actually, because for me to learn what are the, you know, techniques in the mountains are always changing as people get, you know, just learn different things and try different things out and what's the most stable and the safest. And so it was cool to learn from some park rangers who have obviously gotten some really modern training. Oh, yeah. And so we set up a bomb proof anchor with my skis. We dug down two feet into the snow and put my skis parallel and tied a piece of webbing around them. And then buried them, so it made just an incredible anchor. And then I rappelled down into the crevasse, uh, took the tent poles out of the tent, deflated my mattress pad, and then clip, clipped my tent with a carabiner to my harness. And then the guys up top put together a three-to-one and pulled me out. Wow. Yeah. I get up to the top, open up the tent, and it is bone dry inside. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> no damage to the tent, no damage to my stuff. Well, how fun. You know, it's funny. It's I always say when things don't go as expected, that's what makes the memories. That's usually where the adventure, you know, sets yeah. in. But I, well, you can't compare pulling the tent out of the crevasse to skiing Rainier, but still, what a funny twist. Well, the so my buddy said, he's like, something had to happen. This was too easy because right. this is the guy from Seattle and he has uh, all these friends who've tried to climb it and failed. You know, the, there's only like a 50% success rate on Rainier and skiing. It's far less than that. So, you know, he's like, there's no way we could have just walked in, skied it and walked out without anything happening. <laughs> <laughs> something had to happen. Well, yeah. you know, what's so fun about it is that you got to start a little bit later. And you, like you said, there's some risk there. If you couldn't ski it, it could have been a hard hike out, but the the beauty of it is how quickly you can get off the mountain on skis. Yeah. You know, people was. trying to hike down that mountain, that takes forever. But yeah, we that's were the down. beauty of ski mountaineering. We, were, we, we started skiing at 11, and we were in camp at noon. Right. <laughs> so it took you, what, five hours to get up and then yeah. uh, and one hour to get down? And, and it took one hour because we were taking frequent breaks so that our legs were fresh enough to be safe when we're skiing. If sure. you just like opened it up and skied the whole thing, all 5,000 feet of it, it would be like 20 minutes. <laughs> well, You're at camp again. Get outside with the Colorado Mountain Club. The CMC offers 3,000 outdoor skills courses, excursions, and special events every year to adventurers of all ages and abilities. Join today and receive an additional three free bonus months at www.cmc.org slash adventuresports and use discount code podcast.
really excited about ski mountaineering. It's something I want to do more of. And I'm, I'm just now planning on gearing up for the, with the proper equipment for it. We, we did do a 14er last year with our Alpine gear. And it, it was what we had at the time, so we just did it. But that, that was way too heavy. It really wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. But you said that you're hoping to ski the 14ers. So how many have you skied so far? I've skied seven. And which ones were those? So I've skied uh, Albert. I've skied... Um, um, they're all blanking out in my mind. Oh, I've skied Longs, the north face of Longs. I've skied Greys. I've skied Tories. Um, Snuffles and Quandary. Yeah, yeah. So I've done Quandary and uh, Handies. Let me think. Awesome. Have I done any others? Not on skis. We've done a lot of winter ascents and then glissaded down, you know. But on skis, I think I'm only up to two. So you're you're five ahead of me there. Hey, let's go get some more together. <laughs> I'd love There's it. There's so many great ski descents. I really want to do the Holy Cross. That's like the iconic Colorado 14er ski descent. Oh, yeah. I, I When I climbed Holy Cross, I looked down that couloir and went, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it would be awesome. Hey, are you familiar with Frank and Brittany Kinsella? No. Okay, you got to hear about them. Episodes 106 and 107. So okay. we're almost episode 300, which is nuts. So we're talking about 200 episodes ago. But they have skied all the Colorado 14ers. And they built a website. It's, uh, let's see, what is the website? It's 14erskiers.com. That's one for erskiers.com. But if you go to 14erskiers.com, then they have kept a blog about all of their ski mountaineering that they did on all the 14ers. So it's a great resource. If you want to ski 14ers, that's where to go. Awesome. Thanks. That's great advice. Yeah. So, and it's also cool. Um, Frank is a, a realtor in Crested Butte. And uh, so he's he's in an area where skiing is just, you know, everything. And we've done a couple of shows with them. The other show is about uh, winter skiing, backcountry skiing, and about winter access and some of the access challenges that are going on. So if people look for the Kinsella's on our site, uh, you'll find adventuresportspodcast.com. You can go to ski or to uh, episode categories. Just search for the Kinsella's and you'll see all of this stuff. But it's great resource. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Really, really fun. Well, man, we got to talk about your tea. So okay. I, I have to tell the listeners, um, your people sent me some samples of this stuff right when I was uh, really coming down with a, a bad sore throat laryngitis. A matter of fact, if they listen to some of the last couple of shows, you can hear it a little bit in my voice. But I used your tea, you know, during this time period. It felt so good. But I got to tell everybody, I am a, a bit of a, a tea snob. I've been a tea drinker for many, many years. And I got to the point where I couldn't get a cup of tea that I liked if I didn't make it myself at home because I had just the perfect way to make the perfect cup of tea, right? Okay. And I'm telling everybody that because my palate for tea is pretty discriminating. And without giving away the secret of your tea, I have to tell people this stuff is a real deal. It's really, awesome. really, really good. I was blown away. So now you tell them what the secret is, the punchline. Okay. Yeah, so the punchline is so the tea, the company is called Kusa Tea. So C-U-S-A, Kusa Tea. And it is the world's first premium organic instant tea. Instant tea instant tea now instant and tea can't taste good right exactly that's what everybody thinks and so i've created a new technology that has never been used before to make tea instantly that actually tastes like tea so i came up with the idea kurt when i was on a backpacking trip last may and i don't drink coffee anymore it gives me reflux and so i've been been a tea drinker and I'm sitting there with my tea bag in the morning on a backpacking trip, and all my friends have their Starbucks via instant right. coffee. Right. And I started saying, well, I started thinking, why has nobody made an instant tea for people like me? And I had gotten laid off from a previous job uh, a few months before that. So it was kind of that perfect timing to say I've wanted to start a company of my own for a long time, but I, I wanted to do something that was unique, not just another Me Too product. And so when I had this idea, it's like, hey – this could actually be something. And so after the backpacking trip, I went back and I looked up and just to check and see if anybody's ever done this before. 
And I found, you know, Lipton and Nesty both have instant tea products. But I looked a little deeper and you look at their ingredients and tea is like the fourth or fifth ingredient on their label. Like the first is sugar and then it's some sort of a natural or organic or artificial flavoring, I'm sorry. And then it's some sort of a preservative and then tea. You're like, well, I don't want that stuff. I want actually just tea. There's got to be a way to do it. And so I thought it would be faster and easier than it was, but it ended up taking me about nine months to create a new technology for making tea that instant tea that actually tastes like tea. So the 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 technology is you know a lot of listeners are probably familiar with cold brew coffee. So this is essentially cold steeped tea. So I I take beautiful organic tea leaves. And some of my, I have five flavors and two of them are fruit infused as well. So mango green and lemon black. So for those I use real fruit and tea, but anyway, so I take the tea and I put it into room temperature water, a big vat of it, like anywhere from 50 to 200 gallons. And then I pressurize it. So a cylinder comes down on top of the water and it pressurizes it to 500 PSI. And, and then I leave it there for eight, around eight hours. And what that does is it forces the tea leaves to steep into a temperature of water that it normally wouldn't want to. Mm, okay. Normally you need hot water to make tea. And so once I've cold steeped it, it, it literally, it's tea. It's beautiful tea. So then I filter out the tea leaves and the fruit, and then I put it into a vacuum dehydrator. And a vacuum dehydrator doesn't use heat or cold, which is what most dehydration methods use. Sorry about that. Um, it's actually using a vacuum of humidity. So it puts it into this vacuum and it we turn the humidity down to zero inside the cylinder. And once it's at 0% humidity, it starts to pull the H2O from the tea. And so it takes 14 hours for it to fully dehydrate. But after 14 hours, you end up with this like crystallized powder and it's so starved for moisture that the moment you re-enter it into water again, it instantly rehydrates. Right. But again, it's, it's never had hot or cold. So you keep the, the flavor of the tea, all the benefits of tea. It literally, like I've, I've given out thousands of samples now. And the number one comment I get is, this doesn't taste like instant tea. Right. It yeah. tastes like tea. <laughs> Good tea. tea. Organic tea. So you can do it in three seconds. So if you put it in your cup and you pour water on top of it, it'll make a cup of tea in three seconds. You don't even need to stir it. You can also make it with cold uh, for iced tea. You can you can add, you can add it to cold water and you have to shake it up for about 45 seconds. Or the fastest way is to actually dissolve it with a little bit of warm water and then add cold water and ice on top of it. And you have iced tea in 30 seconds. It's awesome. Mm. And I love the idea that you were on a backpacking trip when this came to you. You know, and I, I've been there too. You're watching the people with their wonderful instant coffee and you're thinking, I didn't even bring these nasty tea bags because I don't want to haul them back out again. Yeah, they're soggy. They're wet. Like it's disgusting trying to do it. And then I started looking at the rest of my life and I can't tell you how many times, as most of us are, you're busy in the morning. So you, you boil water, you put your tea bag in your mug and then go off to work. And then your tea bag sits there. And, you know, tea after about five minutes, depending on the tea, between three and five minutes, it starts to get bitter if you leave it in hot water and it's releasing tannic acid. And so it also, it's not as healthy for you when you do it that way. So, but that's the way I did it for years. And cause it's, it's, it was the only way I could make it conveniently. And now you don't have to do that because I've already steeped the tea and then I fill, I take the tea leaves out. So you can't oversteep it. You can leave it in your cup for as long as you want and it won't ever change the taste or the flavor. I love it. I I think it's a great idea and it's a timely idea and it's a product that hasn't hit the world yet. So congratulations, man. That is novel. Really cool. Thank you. I, uh, it's exciting. It's a, like, I, the biggest challenge right now is getting people to taste it and try it because we're so used to instant things being a sacrifice in some way that you're going to sacrifice flavor, but this, you really don't have to. So I appreciate you putting me on your show and I encourage your, Listeners, to give it a try. Um, do you mind if I, I can give them a code as well for a, a discount? Oh, yeah, dude. Let's do it. So CUSA50, C-U-S-A, and then the number five, and then the number zero. If they enter that on my website, then they'll get 50% off their first order. 50% off the first order. And your website, what's that? It's, it's CUSAT.com. So C-U-S-A-T-E-A.com. You know, what I love about this is obviously Kusa is the, the last part of your last name, but it also says USA, which is cool. Yeah. 
So kusatea.com. Kusatea.com. Yeah, Kusa was my nickname in high school, so it's a memorable thing, and I can trademark it, which is difficult to find names that are still trademarkable in America. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for real. Well, I want to, just real briefly, I I have to tell people, you've had a, a career in the outdoor industry and this tea launch is your your latest venture, but you've yep. worked for various outdoors companies and built uh, a career that was related to outdoors and adventure. So I guess the question is, how has that been for you, and what do you think of the industry, and how can people do something similar if they're interested? Sure. Well, good question. I, I've loved the outdoor industry. It's definitely my favorite. Uh, like I said, I, I've been in the natural product industry as well, so stores like Whole Foods or Vitamin Cottage. Um, but the outdoor industry is really where my heart is. I grew up as an outdoorsman. Like I said, it was Boy Scouts. And then just I've been, I, I can't tell you, every weekend I'm doing something outdoors. So being able to be in that industry was a dream of mine. And the people that are part of it are the same way. So when you deal with, I've also, like I started my career in, I was working in the food service industry, selling compostable cups and plates which was cool is an earthy product, a natural, environmentally friendly product, but dealing with a buyer from these big food service giants like U.S. Foods or Cisco, it can be very challenging. They enjoy beating salesmen up, right? Mm, yeah. And then you come into the outdoor industry and people are genuinely friendly. They genuinely want to help. Um, doesn't mean they're always going to buy your product, but at least they're going to be responsive and kind when they do it because we've all been there right? Uh, and we all like share that kind of passion that we like to get outdoors. So the industry is amazing. Um, as far as people getting involved in it, you know, it really depends on where they're located in the country. There's certain areas that are, are easier than others. I'd say Colorado's, if not the easiest, the easiest, it's one of the easiest because there's so many companies that are out there. Um, there are specific recruiting firms that focus on the outdoors and you could just do a Google search for, outdoor industry recruiter and they can help people find jobs that are in the outdoor industry. And that's probably the the most general advice that I can give. There's also, there's a, a website outdoor industry jobs. I think it's .com. It may be .org. I have to look it up, but that's a, a, a service that it has outdoor industry jobs all around the country. Very, very cool. I know a lot of our listeners you know, one of the reasons that people listen to the Adventure Sports Podcast is because they love the idea of kind of that alternative to the more business-centric cube farm approach to life, right? Totally. And most of the guests that have come on our show are people that have said, no, I'm going to walk away from that for a season or walk away from that for a lifetime. I'm going to figure out another way to do things. And they've had amazing, amazing experiences because they just said, I've got to do something different. And so, anyway, any any little tips and, and helpful advice that people have to help people along in that journey is, is much appreciated. So, you said OutdoorIndustryJobs.com, and you can just Google that and uh, find a way to get into the industry. Absolutely. Right on. Well, Jim, what a cool thing, man. I love your stories about all of your stuff. We've uh, The clock's got us. We're out of time. We didn't even get to Nepal. So... <laughs> All right, next time. Yeah, you said that the the most epic ski day was in Nepal, so we'll have to come back and do that. What mountain was that? So it was on Mira Peak, which isn't that tall for the Himalayas. It's like twenty three thousand feet. But I was when I was skiing down, I was looking at four eight thousand meter peaks mm. at sunset. So Everest and Makalu and Shishapongma and Cho Oyu, and there's like these they're towering giants all around me. And it was one of those pinch me moments. You're like, where am I? I can't believe I'm here skiing amongst the giants of the world. Um, Wow. You know, I get chills just thinking about that. I get chills just describing it again. Because there was like, it was like a red sky glowing, orange red sky too. And I don't know. It felt like I was hallucinating. Mm. Well, that's the reason why we do this stuff. To have yep. life experiences that you just will never forget, you know. One of our, our slogans that we always talk about is, is find your adventure and enlarge your life. Man, does it ever. Can you imagine a life without the 14ers, without climbing, without skiing? Nope. Yeah, you, just, you're not going to remember what you ate for breakfast 
yesterday. <laughs> right. You know? You're going to remember skiing Rainier or even just getting out for a hike locally. Like it's, those are the things that you create memories with. And especially with people that are important to you. Yeah. There's nothing better. Those are all the best friends in my life have been the ones that I've had adventures with. Well, Jim, I agree completely, and I think that's a beautiful note to end the show on. It's the reason why we do this. It's what the Adventure Sports Podcast is all about. So, hey, listeners, you heard it from Jim. Until the next show, make sure that you get some tea, some kusa tea, right? But also make sure that you get out there and have some fun. Absolutely. Thanks, Kurt. You bet, man. Coming up on Monday's episode, we've got Stephen Ladd in. He'll be here to tell us all about sailing for three years and 15,000 miles through 19 countries in a 12-foot boat. You know that one's going to be good. Until then, get out and have some fun.